Hey everybody, it is time once again for the ranking. And hello, how are you doing everybody? We're on episode 10 of this ongoing saga wherein I'm trying to rank every single game in my collection by comparing them against other games over and over and over again in a series of little mini deathmatch battles to see what are the best of the best. And um, now, I'm about to talk a little bit about behind-the-scenes stuff of the making of this show uh, because it seems like every episode I come across there's a new wrinkle as I learn more of the ins and outs of the PubMeeple ranking engine, or I come up with different ways to describe things. If you don't care about that, if you just want to hear about the games, that's okay. Hit that link down in the show notes there. I mean, because I'm going to talk about this for a few minutes. You can skip all of this if you just want to hear me compare a bunch of games. Because that's what you came here for, right? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, folks, they're gone. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff because, oh my gosh, here's the deal. Last episode, episode 9, I didn't realize until after I'd finished recording because, remember, I had so many other problems with the autosave feature of PubMeeple messing me up and losing progress and all kinds of crap. I didn't realize until after I was done recording that, oh, it's starting to repeat games. I did not expect that. I mean, here's the deal. We're going through, I forget, something like 400 games or so. And I figured that means we would do 200 or so comparisons of A to B, um, you know, C to D, E to F, G to H, etc., etc. And once every single game of those 400, i.e. 200 um, you know, comparisons, all 400 games, had been compared against something else, then it would start doing repeats. But nope. It started repeating much sooner. We haven't even gotten to 200 comparisons yet. Or um, 200 games, I think, right? Or we're doing about what? On average, I guess, uh, 10 comparisons per episode. I think the first episode and the second episode were a little bit more. Um, so we're still a long ways away from having seen all the games, and yet we're starting to repeat. And here's the deal. What I don't want to do with this series is, oh, every time corrosion comes up or rebuilding Seattle comes up or revive or merchants of the dark road or whatever. Oh, now Rado's going to spend another three minutes describing that game. I've already heard him describe that 10 times. I want to get to the point where, Hey, once I've talked about all these, it's going to go much quicker because uh, I'm assuming if you like this show, you're going to watch every single episode and stick it with, uh, stick with it to me all the way to the end. So you don't need to hear me describe these over and over and over again. But, the system isn't gonna. The system doesn't care about that, and there's no way I can memorize uh, everything that I previously talked about since this has been going on for months now. So here's what I did today, folks. I actually fired up the PubMeeple engine. I started recording, and then I just rapid fire off the top of my head. Did about ten rankings. Um, you know, just boom, boom, boom. Didn't say a thing. Just straightforward. Just you know, went with my gut. Boom, boom, boom. And knowing that that wouldn't make for a very satisfying show, but um, I've now got that recording queued up, ready for me to replay, and um, because I know what the 10 games that I'm about to talk about are, I was able, before recording, able to go back uh, to the uh, Rankening blog. This is a thing I've set up on BoardGameGeek. There's a link for this down in the show notes. I've created an ongoing blog for people who want to subscribe on BoardGameGeek instead of subscribing on YouTube, and in every blog entry, I enter 
every single game that is in that episode. So now all I've got to do is, hey, I recorded this thing and said, oh, well, uh, there's going to be this game. I can do a quick search. Have I already talked about this game? And that's going to have to be my process, I think, going forward so I don't repeat descriptions a lot. Right. So I did all that. And then imagine my surprise when the uh, video I'm about to play, and I'm going to comment on it. I'm going to pause before I make my spurred savage. I'm going to describe games, and then I'll then you'll see what I actually chose. Right? Um, even about half of them are new games I haven't talked about before. Half of them are repeats from stuff I've previously talked about. But every one of those repeats was from the first episode of The Rankening. And if you remember, the first episode of The Rankening, I wasn't describing the games at all. I was just saying, oh, A has this, B has that, I'll go with B. And I was doing things like five times faster. And I wasn't actually giving you an idea of, well, what is this game? I've never heard of it. So, in this particular episode, even though I've done all this work... Every single game is... Uh, I have not spent any time describing any of these games. So I'm going to describe all of them. But I think this is a process I'll have to go through up until the point where all 400 games have gotten a description in the process. Then things will really get going fast. Right. Okay. Maybe that was interesting to you. Maybe not. If nothing else, you learned, hey, there's a Board Game Geek blog. Or if you want to see every game that's been talked about in this series, you can go there and, and literally search for the name of the game, and you'll find it. But all that out of the way, let me now switch over to my pre-recorded spur-of-the-moment thing. And here I am, but as proof, let's see. Uh, if I hide this camera of me right now, where are you? If I hide that... Boom. There I was. This was earlier this morning. I was wearing different clothes. And uh, I wasn't really planning on talking at all. I was just getting this stuff down so I could do the checking. Um, you know, If I press play, you'll see me start to do it. But uh, now i got to bring myself back because, hey, the first pairing... Folks, here we are. Uh, if you jumped ahead, we're about to do some pairing. Comparing of Role Player versus Forbidden Desert, which was the cliffhanger from last episode. Which one am I going to go with? Well, Role Player is an absolutely brilliant dice drafting game where um, every round some dice are going to come out <clears throat> and we're going to take turns grabbing some. And you know the color of the dice and the number on the die are both hugely important because we take these dice and we slot them into literal little slots on our player boards. And our player boards represent Dungeons & Dragons style character generation sheets. You know, where we're trying to figure out the strength, the... Well, let's see if I can remember the ball. The strength, the intelligence, the wisdom, the dexterity, the constitution, and the charisma. I think those are all the stats. And so each one of those stats is ultimately going to, over the course of several rounds of dice drafting, get three dice apiece. The uh, color indicates the stat. The number, of course, indicates the number. So if I get three red sixes, boom, my constitution will be 18. Um, and I've got all kinds of goals that I want certain thresholds based on um, you know, the type of character I am, because that's all randomly chosen as part of setup based on the uh, uh, you know, the special uh, you know, equipment I might have, attributes, alignment, all of that stuff is wonderfully, you know, the the act of creating a role-playing pen and paper character is turned into a really crunchy and insanely tension-filled dice drafting game as we're trying to get the right dice to hit the right statistics. Neat, neat stuff. Brilliant. The other one, Forbidden Desert, is the um, second game in Matt Leacock's Forbidden series. Matt Leacock, of course, was the designer of... Uh, 
Pandemic, the, the most important influential cooperative board game in history, I'm just going to say. Um, and he followed that up after doing some other stuff with Forbidden Island, which was kind of like a really super simplified, streamlined, very easygoing um uh, you know, light pandemic for gateway families. Too light for me and Jen, but he followed that up with Forbidden Desert, which took the same core structure of pandemic by way of Forbidden Island, but made it much more crunchy and incredibly challenging. As we're uh, stranded in a Forbidden Desert, moving our meeples around, trying to literally dig our way through sand dunes as they constantly... Um, as this shifting sands, because the whole board is kind of like uh, the equivalent of like one of those sliding puzzles you could get, you know, where you're just trying to, there's one empty space and you're sliding tiles around. The tiles of this board are constantly sliding around, and as they do, they get filled up with more and more sand, and we're trying to dig through the sand. It's brilliant. It is one of the best examples I've ever seen of a board game where the board fights back, where the board is an actual living thing. It's not just a static piece of cardboard that you have to maneuver. You have to be really smart and anticipate what the board is going to do um, and as you're trying to find all the pieces to build a sky ship so you can get out. They're both brilliant. These are both fantastic and um, my uh, gut feeling after thinking about it for all of 30 seconds when I pre-recorded this earlier today was, I believe, if I remember correctly, I think I went with, am I unpaused? There we go. Unpaused. I'm going to go with Forbidden Desert. And um, yeah, oops, and now oh, we got to pause again. Ah, shoot! I'm messing it all up. Okay, for folks who skipped, this is a pre-recorded thing. There we go. Pause. Pause. Okay, um, I went with Forbidden Desert. Oh, I should have described why. Why? Oh, at least I can rewind. Why Forbidden Desert over Role Player? They're both brilliant. Um, sorry, folks, I'm trying a new thing today if you skipped over the intro. And uh, it's, I'm trying to figure out how to make it work because, because of stuff. Anyway, Forbidden Desert is... I, love, I, I prefer cooperative games to competitive games right off the bat. It's a faster game. Uh, you know, I could play. We could play a game of it in half the time. And while role player is a heavier, crunchier game, uh, Forbidden Desert really is deceptively deep too. Uh, it does such a great job of success in this game, coming from counting cards, much like the original Pandemic, and anticipating what's the likelihood this thing is going to happen at this point. Because you have to prepare your defenses for beating Sun before it comes out. And when you pull off a really Smart move in Forbidden Desert. It's just such an amazing feeling. That's why it got the nod as I click on it here. And then we move on to the next pair. Runebound versus Paperback Adventures, which if you're paying attention, you already saw me reveal which one I'm choosing, but I'm still going to go through the process anyway. So Runebound 3rd Edition is interesting. It's not as good as Runebound 2nd Edition. Uh, in fact, I mean, I talked about this when I covered Runebound 3rd Edition. I was really kind of disappointed that it, it's another game that follows in this kind of modern remake attitude that developers seem to have these days where, hey, if I'm going to remake an old classic of mine, um, I am going to try to find ways to make it less tension-filled, a little bit more loose, a little bit more forgiving. And um, yeah, I've, I've just seen it over and over again. You know, I mean, first noticed it when Caverna 
uh, you know, kind of replaced Agricola. You have seen it with Brass uh, Birmingham versus Brass Lancashire. I mean, just the just this month, I saw it with uh, Amsterdam being the sequel to Macau from Stefan Feld. All these designers, uh, when they revisit their classic designs that are full of tough choices and tension, they tend to make them a little bit easier going. And that was certainly true for Runebound 3rd Edition. There were some very cool ideas. And I should say, what is Runebound 2nd uh, or 3rd Edition? This is a big, expansive... Um, is it Glenn Drover and Martin Wallace who designed it? Are they the team that designed the original and the second edition? I'd have to go back and look it up. But anyway, it's a it's a cool competitive racing adventure fantasy game where there's some threat that's going to destroy the fantasy world, and players start out as little low-level nobodies, and you run around, you know, completing quests. Fighting monsters, leveling up, racing to be the one who can actually save the world. And um, the thing that I've always loved about Runebound was the way you traverse the world because you've got, on your turn, you roll these really cool custom dice that each face represents different terrain types. And depending on what you roll, that tells you what type of terrain you can move on. And it's always, it was a really interesting and fun little puzzle to figure out. Right, well, based on these, where I am, where do I want to go, and what dice did I get? Well... Dice aren't really are going to be really inefficient to go where I want to go, but oh, they would let me get over to that cave over there. That's really nice, and I love that system. I, I think it's brilliant. And then Runebound Third Edition comes out, and it neuters it, makes it it's still there, but it's just less impactful. It's it's much more easygoing and forgiving. The dice don't really constrain you that much, and that was kind of a disappointment. So. Uh, why do I still have it? I was about to get rid of Th- Runebound 3rd Edition until the cooperative expansion came out. And suddenly, with the co-op version of Runebound, it's phenomenal. I love it to pieces. And I don't mind uh, because, you know, the uh, the you know the fact that it's no longer a competitive game, the tension comes from other places. Even if the puzzle of traveling around the world isn't so omnipresent, there's so many really cool ways that this world is alive as players are trying to team up and work together or split up and solve different problems. It's the co-op mode, which sadly is all but impossible to get. It was a very small expansion, very limited print run, and it's out of print now. But if you can get your hands on it, Runebound 3rd Edition is a phenomenal co-op game. All right. Then, uh, then you've got Paperback Adventures, which is a solo sequel to Paperback, which was a phenomenal uh, answer to the question, what happens if you cross the deck building of Dominion with the wordplay of Scrabble? You get Paperback, which is brilliant. One of the all-time greats. Uh, Paperback originally, I think, made it onto my top 10 must-have games. If I'm on a desert isle, I want to have it. Um, Paperback Adventures is a sequel, which is predominantly, or I should say, when I played it, it was a solo game that um, added a fantasy adventure element on top of the deck-building wordplay of Paperback. And it was a brilliant little miniature campaign. Um, you know, level up your character, which is to say, make your deck full of stronger and stronger cards with all kinds of really cool special powers as you try to draw a hand, figure out the best word you can make with this hand of cards to do damage to bad guys before they fight back. And um, the game is full of so many wonderful, quirky, funny touches. But I also really love the fact that when you've got your cards, uh, how you score them when you make your word depends on if you splay them to the left or the right because they reveal different portions of the cards. That was such a cool uh, uh, improvement over the original paperback. And here's the deal. My only complaint about Paperback Adventures was when I covered it in prototype form, it was solo only. And the developers were only just starting to work on a co-op mode. And I did play that co-op mode, and I thought, oh, this is really promising. This looks really good. 
I have not played whatever mode they came up with for the final. And here's the deal. Because of that, because I've only really played paperback official, the official paperback rules as a solo game, and I have played Runebound, paperback is a co-op game. Uh, Runebound as a co-op beats paperback as a solo. Paperback as a co-op might beat Runebound, but I haven't had a chance to play it yet. This makes me think, before Paperback Adventures comes up on this list of this process again, I need to have played a co-op, the final version. But for now, based on what I have experienced, I'm going to give the nod to Runebound 3rd Edition. Boop! There we go. Did I click on it? There we go. Okay, then the, uh, the ranking engine threw another... Uh, Decision at me. Railroad Revolutions or Paperback Adventures. I've just described Paperback Adventures. What is Railroad Revolutions? It's um, from What's Your Game. And folks, has anybody heard from What's Your Game? Are they gone? Man, that breaks my heart if so, because they used to be my one of my favorite developers of all time. I hope they somehow make a comeback. I hope they're not another casualty of, you know, of, of COVID, but they might be. But anyway, Suffice to say, this is one of their best. Uh, this is one of the ones I've kept all these years. And what is it? Well, it is a hey, it's you know the uh, uh, the American frontier is waiting for us to develop rail lines from the east coast to the west coast and uh, develop the telegraph road, actually, which is like a whole sub element of the game. But I um, you know it's doing a lot of the stuff you've seen in lots of games, laying track, you know, making connections with different cities, you know, racing against other players to get first, uh, you know, you know, land rights on the ground uh, to you know get bonuses and whatnot, but. What drives it all is what's interesting. It is a worker placement game. And at any given time, you've got a handful of workers, and there's there's regular workers who are nothing special who can just do the basic actions. But then there are engineer workers. That your, your regular workers can be trained to become engineers or accountants or I want to say two others. I think one of them was conductors. Uh, I don't remember what they all were, but there were like four different types of uh, workers your regular workers would become. And so you spend a regular worker out to do an action like lay track or you know get funds or whatever it might be. They'll just do the basic action. But if you send the accountant out to do it, they'll make the action cheaper. If you send the engineer out to do it, they'll make the action more powerful. And so you you know what you want to do, but what type of worker am I going to do it with really elevates the worker placement of this game and makes it something really special. Um, and so I had to decide which of these two make it. And I believe I'm going to unpause now. I think I ultimately went with Railroad Revolution. No. Ah, my gut feeling was paperback. I went with paperback when I recorded this. Uh, you know, earlier this morning, it just went boom, boom, boom. Um, why? Why did I do that? What was my gut? Because now, having said it out loud, I kind of feel like I prefer Railway Revolution. But when I was doing this earlier, and I was just silently, okay, just immediate gut response. You know what it is. You know what it is. Um, when I was just doing them back to back, I probably felt bad about skipping over Paperback Adventure, and I didn't want to skip it twice. So I probably went with it. And I mean, and, and to be fair, I mean, Paperback Adventures is amazing, is absolutely phenomenal. But Railroad Revolution, I might have cheated Railroad Revolution. I'll have to keep an eye on that when we move forward. Folks, I'm always learning how to better do this ranking show. Uh, but anyway, we'll go with uh, Paperback Adventures as the solo experience over Railroad Revolution. And I might be cheating you. What's your game? But anyway. Then we come up to the next... Oh, pause! Pause. Okay. So the next one, where I was just doing my rapid fire off the top of my head, Tiny Effort Defenders versus Quadropolis. Tiny Effort Defenders is one of my favorite co-op games of all time. This is basically... 
Kind of like, what would you get if you cross Pandemic, my favorite game of all time, with Aeon's End, another one of my favorite co-ops? Because this is a game where we are running around a very, very tiny little fantasy world trying to fight fires, literally fight fires, uh, because the different kingdoms are coming under assault from waves of bad guys, and the damage they do to the kingdoms is represented by these cool little fire tokens. The, the production on the second edition of Tiny Epic Defenders is through the roof amazing. Uh, absolutely. The first one was nice, but oh man, the second edition is so gorgeous. But anyway, we're running around this little circular thing, and every round, um, there's a deck of cards that's, that you shuffle up and determines what player order is going to be. When I get to go, when you get to go, when the bad guys get to go. And over time, this is a deck builder because that deck of events fills up with more and more bad guys. At the beginning of the game, oh, there's just a couple of bad guys. There's, we're going to go through that deck, draw five cards, then boom, reset. But then more bad guys again. Now there's uh, five bad guys in the bad guys. Six, seven, eight, nine. And the order these bad guys will come out in is hugely important because if we can anticipate where they're going to be, we can get into position before they attack the environment, and that is much more effective rather than letting them attack the environment and then us rushing over there to undo the damage they do. So, so much of this game is about card counting and learning to anticipate, based on statistical likelihood, what the next um, you know hit spot is going to be. And I love it. I love it even more when you add the expansion, uh, the uh, was it the Dark Tidings or Dark War or something like that. Anyway, though, it's one of the all-time greats, a very sadly misunderstood cooperative game because some people think, oh, it's just luck. You never know what's going to happen. That's because you're not paying attention, people who feel that way. It's all about anticipating, using your advanced knowledge of what's most likely to be hit and making informed decisions about where you should go and protect. I mean, which is the core of Pandemic 2, but Tiny Epic Defenders wears that on its sleeve even more. So, all that compared and contrasted to Quadropolis, which is a wonderful little SimCity-style um, tile-drafting game, and then putting those tiles out on your tiny little board, and you're trying to get the right tiles next to the other tiles because all the different types of SimCity buildings score in different ways, depending on whether they're residences or commercial, all that kind of stuff. The thing that makes it interesting is it um, introduced the idea that another game, Meadow, really ran with many years later. The idea of, oh, there's a grid of tiles I can grab. And if I want to grab that tile, I've got my own little picker tiles that I... Say if I put a three... Uh, and I put it on the left side of the grid, so pointing towards a bunch of tiles. The number three means I go one, two, three, and pick the third tile in that row or in that column, and then it's gone. And then that space is blocked. Again, this is uh, done more recently to really great effect with Meadow, but Quadropolis introduced it and did it beautifully. Um, although, like I said, Meadow really kind of built on it. I mean, Meadow is kind of a Quadropolis killer, but Quadropolis is... Uh, is uh, Still, a lovely, fast-playing little game, and i got to pick one of them. If I recall correctly when I did this, my gut feeling was Tiny Epic Defenders, uh, in part because Quadropolis has kind of been... I mean, I'm th do I even need to keep it now that I've got Meadow? I'll have to think about that. This is making me think. This is making me revisit some um, elements of my, uh, of my um, collection. But anyway... Um, Tiny Epic Defenders is one of the all-time greats. And when you add in that expansion, oh, it becomes uh, just next level. So I bet you, yep, I went with Tiny Epic Defenders. And then the system threw Glenmore Chronicles 2, Glenmore 2 Chronicles. And again, Quadropolis. So 
talked about Claudropolis. Let's talk about Glenn Moore. Um, this is the sequel to one of the greatest tiling games of all time. Uh, it is a time track style game where um, the, the brilliant thing about it is you're trying to build up your own little Glen Moore, your own little fiefdom in Scotland, in the Scottish Highlands. And when you grab a tile and put it into your little you know tile bed that you're making, you activate it and every tile that's adjacent. And that is brilliant because it turns tiling into engine building in the best possible way. And then it combines that. The original Glenmore took that idea with some really tight restrictions about how you can lay out your tiles. And then it accentuated it by saying, oh, and there's also a time track that um, makes the draft for getting these tiles incredibly tension-filled too. So anyway, that's regular Glenmore, one of my all-time faves. Glenmore 2 um, is everything I just said. Although, again, this is another example where it takes it easy on you because the tile laying is nowhere near as restrictive as it used to be. Because it used to be you had to be restricted by a road that was on the x-axis and a river that was on the y-axis. Now, if I recall correctly, in 2, the road has been replaced and the river became the x-axis. And there is no road now. So the tile laying just becomes much more easygoing. And I don't know why they did that other than to make the game a little bit less tension-filled, a little bit more relaxed and laid-back and easygoing. And that's fine. Fine, but I like more tension in my games. Now, what did they do instead? They introduced this whole separate board where there's kind of like this area um, territory grabbing area majority thing with a lot of really cool um, uh, elements that get added through that. Plus, the chronicles are the game comes with, I forget, like a half a dozen something like that, different little mini-modules that you can choose that were designed by a whole big um, you know, murderer's row of some of the greatest modern Euro designers, because everybody loves Glenn Moore, so everybody was working on this new Chronicle. So, I love how much new stuff is in here. I think it's great. But I always was bothered by the fact that the core gameplay got a little bit weaker, which is why I'm going to give it to Quadropolis as soon as I unpause. And yes, I did. Okay. But then we go on to the next one. Glenmore 2 is up for more, going up against Goblins versus Zombies, which is a very interesting game. There's no two way, there's no better way to describe this and say that this is. Do people remember a few years ago? This was a huge hit of the the video game Plants vs Zombies, where you were, um, you know, basically it was a tower defense game where you were trying to lay out plants and grow them, and waves of zombies were coming, and the plants were just trying to destroy the zombies by spitting seeds at them or something like that. Anyway, this is the same core idea except it replaced plants with goblins. We are leaders of goblin clans. This is a deck building game where our deck is our uh, goblins that we can deploy into the three different lanes. Every at the end of every round, new go uh, zombies will appear and start trudging towards our uh, goblins, and they all have different special powers and whatnot. And it's just fantastic. Such an overlooked little gem of game. It had a very tiny print run, but I always thought it was very impressive, especially because it works equally well as a competitive game where we're competing to be the best at fighting the zombies, uh, or a co-op game where we're actually trying to fight off our own separate waves while helping each other, or a really good solo game, too. It's great, and I think it deserves more love. And of these two, if I were only going to keep one, because I already love Glenn more. Oh, mm, wait a minute. Now I'm trying to remember, which one did I go with? Which one did I go with? Because I do love all the stuff that's in Glenmore. Actually, I think I think I went with Glenmore, too. Uh, because 
I mean, Glenmore, even simpler, is still great. And there are so many cool... And actually, Glenmore 2 has gotten an expansion now with even more stuff. So I think, ultimately, I gave it to Glenmore just because of the insane depth and breadth of play. Goblins Zombies... Goblins vs. Zombies does one thing, and it does it really, really well. But it's hard to compete with the variety of Glenmore Chronicles 2. Is that true? Yep, that's what I went with. Okay, I'm trying to remember what I came up with. Next up, we've got Free Radicals versus Favor of the Pharaoh. Free Radicals is a brilliant game set in a post-scarcity future where all of humanity's problems are solved. And um, even though there's still competition for renown and fame and whatnot, um, the beautiful thing is... Whenever I gather the core resources in this game that I am trying to hoard, there's not food and money and weapons or stuff that you expect in most board games. It's knowledge, straight up knowledge. And one of the beautiful things is, as the more knowledge I accrue in this game, uh, it converts to points. But when I give, the, when I collect this knowledge, I could keep it for myself and hoard it to give points, or I can give that knowledge to my opponents in this competitive game, and that lets them scream up the the progress track, potentially earning them more points. But here's the deal: every time I give you knowledge, I unlock really cool bonus special powers that I can use. Because this is what we should do as a society. We could be living in a, a post-scarcity world right now if we would get over our zero-sum mindset that has been with us since, you know, we were um, simple cavemen and all that. But anyway, so I love the message of Free Radicals, but then I also love the gameplay because this is 10 different minigames, all that play radically differently. So I'm playing a, a, a domino tile laying game. You're playing a, an, an adventure game. You're playing a Moncala game. And I'm playing a deck builder. We're all playing our own little games, but then it comes to this central board where we collect and share the knowledge resources we're accruing in our own little minigames and trying to compete there. It's fantastic. One of the all-time grades made my top 10 of the year. It's going to be pretty tough for uh, Favor of the Pharaoh to beat it. But let's give Tom Lehman his due, because Favor of the Pharaoh is freaking brilliant. It's a largely abstract game, uh, and it's Yahtzee. And it's actually a sequel to a game that Tom had done many, many years ago. can't remember the name of it. I want to say King was in the title of the original one, or something like that. King's Domain? Uh, anyway, though, doesn't matter. Favor of the Pharaoh is the one I kept. And this is a game where you start out, where you're rolling, you, you roll, re-roll, re-rolls, um, you know, uh, Yahtzee style. And you're doing it because there's a randomly set up board that we are trying to climb our way to the top of. And uh, it's actually a grid of all of these different progress markers we can make as we try to gain the favor of the Pharaoh by making it to the top of these uh, columns in this grid. And um, to make it, the milestones, to get to these and climb higher and higher and higher, because the higher we climb, the more dice we get to roll. Different types of dice, different ways we can combine. But to be able to climb up, we have to, hey, I got to get two pair to make it from this space to this space, or I got to get three of a kind, or I got to get a whatever it might be. And it's great. It's, like I said, pretty abstract, but so much replayability, really sharp. Watch my run-through. Uh, turn on the Klingon subtitles, because I did make one very big goof during setup for the way the board is set up. But still, I think you get a good sense for how the gameplay works. And honestly, I think the way I set it up is kind of a cool variant um, that maybe even makes the game a little bit better. But regardless, Favor of the Pharaohs is a wonderful and you know, gorgeous. The, uh, the components, the dice are lovely, um, even if it is a pretty abstract game. And um, with everything I just described, I don't think it's going to be too terribly surprising, folks, that Free Radicals gets the nod. Yep. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. 
So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. But now, let's compare Favor of the Pharaoh to First Class. All aboard the Orient Express. And now, I don't remember the name. I want to say the name, is it Helmet Ole? Something like that? Anyway, the designer of First Class All Aboard the Orient Express, or one of the co-designers, is known for doing 18xx super heavy, crunchy, meaty, um, you know, train simulations. And this is not a super heavy crunchy meat. This is a nice little mid-weight Euro um, that kind of strips away all of the Byzantine complexity and just says, hey, I'm trying to build up my best rail. Not, I mean, I, you don't you never need to lay track in this game. Instead, you're just trying to build up your actual rail lines as represented by getting more and more cars on. I think you're building two different trains and getting more cars that have different types of, uh, you know, more passenger cars or cargo freight cars or whatnot. Um, and all these things that you're trying to build up your, your, your best rail lines are, um, are done through drafting cards from a big grid. If I recall correctly, it's like, I don't know, a three by five or a three by, I want to say three by seven. I haven't played this game for years. Uh, like I say, it's a three rows, seven columns. Picture this big grid of cards. And here's the deal. On your turn, you can grab any one of those cards and you want every single one. Every card is incredibly valuable. Every card is incredibly powerful. But here's the deal. You got to pick one and it'll let you like, you know, do various and other things. You know, build up your train, uh, move forward on, you know, progress tracks, all kinds of stuff. Because uh, there's several different types of cards. So I take a card and then it's somebody else's turn. They take a card. It comes back to me. Yes, the card I want is still there. Oh, I can now I can combo these two well together. But here's the deal. In, in a given row of seven cards, if I recall correctly, in a two-player game, and I, the number of players represent, you know, there would be a bigger grid with more players. But in a two-player game, once two cards, or maybe it was three cards, had been taken from a row of seven, the remaining cards, let's say it was three, once three cards have been taken from a row, the other four cards instantly disappear. And so this puts such an incredibly powerful, palpable sense of tension as you're so desperately, please let this be there when I get around to my next turn because things just disappear so quick. And you can t make uh, you can make gambles and say, okay, I'll grab this card. It's nice, but without this other card, it doesn't. It's not going to do what I want. Will that other card be there? Because if if, if you know, there's a one in three chance, it's going to disappear because I can see if one more card gets taken from that line, and Jen might take one, then. I, you know, so am I going to take that gamble? It's awesome. I think these are both great games. Um, but the uh, first class is more thematic. Uh, it is more tension-filled. Uh, it is more interactive, I guess. Uh, I'm going to give it, if I recall correctly, to first class. All aboard the Orient Express. Did I do that? Yes, I Yes, I did. After thinking about it. Okay, now we've got two new ones to talk about. Acroteri versus Eminent Domain. Microcosm. Okay. 
Akrotiri is that rarest of beasts, a pickup and deliver game that we actually enjoy. And that's because we don't like pickup and deliver games because so much of the gameplay is about board traversal, and board traversal is not our favorite thing to do. Spending a t our entire turn, just, oh, I'm going to move three steps, and I got to do that two more turns before I will eventually get where I need to go to pick up the thing, and then I got to do it for three more turns to deliver. Pick up and deliver. Standard bog vanilla pick up and deliver is boring as all get out. But what makes Akrotiri's pick up and deliver great is we move at warp speed in the um, I think it's the Aegean Sea in the early Greek Isles, if I recall correctly. As the board um, builds over time, because there's a tile laying game too, as we're laying more tiles to create more um, you know islands in the Aegean. Um, and these islands produce different things. They want different things. But when I decide to move my ship, it can go as far as it wants in just a single action, pick stuff up, and then as far uh, go as far as I want. It's just super-duper hyperspeed. So if you're going to do pick up and deliver, do it that way. Um, you'll make it to where your, your vehicle is effectively a teleportation machine, and then we don't mind the pickup and deliver so much. But that's not what makes the game cool. What makes the game cool is why you know, we're laying tiles to try to you know, build up the archipelago of all these different islands, because we have cards that um, are kind of treasure maps saying, okay, you can get this treasure if you move your ship to an island that is north of three green islands, let's say. So now, because I've got this secret goal, I'm trying to make a green island or an island that is north of three green islands. Right? Okay. There's a green island over there. If I, I can get this, I'll put this green island over here. Now, if I can just get one more green island and put it south of the other two, this one will be north of them, and I can make my, I can get there and get my power. So you've got this really cool system of like objectives, and everybody's got their own, and uh, it's really, really, really freaking good. Okay, so let's talk about Eminent Domain, Microcosm. Eminent Domain is a wonderful deck builder that's kind of crossed with the following actions of uh, you know Race for the Galaxy and San Juan and Puerto Rico and all that, but combines it with a really brilliant deck builder. Eminent Domain Microcosm took the Eminent Domain setting and card game, but stripped it down into a little micro game. This is back when micro games were hot and all publishers wanted a micro game. This was one of them from Tasty Minstrel. May they rest in peace. And it was very, very good. Because uh, I forget, the game comes with 18, 20 cards or something like that. It's a deck builder, but you start out with no deck. On your turn, you uh, you get, you draw a card from the public display, and uh, it goes in your hand, and then you can play a card from your hand, or you can recover your discard pile. That's it. And you're mostly what you're doing is you're grabbing cards that let you claim planets as part of the expansion of your eminent domain, which is what Emdo has always been. And um, the interesting thing is, once you claim a planet, it's face down. Nobody else knows what it is. I get to know what it is. When I eventually reveal it, then everybody knows you know what what I'm getting out of it. It's a really good game. Um, there's it a surprising amount of crunch in a fast-playing little, uh, you know, 18 or 20 card micro game, uh, and it's amazing that you could actually make a compelling deck builder out of so few cards. A deck builder where you start with no deck, you build from nothing. It's neat. It's fast, and surprisingly, even though. There is a little bit of take that, because players can try to take over. They can attack my planet that I've previously gotten or whatever. Um, it's so fast that Jen and I didn't mind the take that too much. At least I, I remember not minding it. So that's a real feather in Eminent Domain's cap. But uh, still, it does have player versus player. So of course, no surprise, I went with Akrotiri. Right? Did I? Yes, that's what I did. But then we have Railroad Inc. Deep Blue, or Deep Red. 
or since then, Deep Yellow and Deep Green, any of the Railroad Ink games versus Eminent Domain Microcosm. Uh, the ink, uh, Railroad Ink is a Yahtzee-style roll-and-write where you've got these custom dice that represent different roads and rail lines that have intersections or straightaways or bends. And every round, um, we roll these dice and then everybody picks right. How am I going to use the die faces that came up to expand on my little grid that I'm drawing rolling, or writing on my rail lines to connect different cities and my roads to connect different cities? And uh, depending on which mode you have, there's different sub-objectives you can do. Uh, like, you know, the, the deep blue one has to do with water and dealing with rivers and lakes. The red one has to do with volcanoes and meteors. Uh, the yellow one has to do with deserts. And the green one has to do with a forest, I guess. It's been a while since I played. But anyway, it's a great series. Really wonderful. One of the one of the best deck builders out there. Everybody goes on and on and on how great Cartographers is. I'd play Railroad Inc. Deep Blue any day of the week. Which is why I think of these two, I gave it, yes I did, to Railroad Inc. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about... No! I didn't pause! Oh, I'm spoiling everything! Oh! Oh! Shoot! Gosh darn it. I need to make a bigger... All right. All right, let's try this again. Uh, there we go. Pause! Jeez. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Uh, again, if that made no sense to you because you skipped my opening, my opening explains why that happened. But I'm getting better at it. I'll, I'll get the hang of this. Anyway, though, Four Gardens versus Voyages. Four Gardens is a very, very simple gateway-style game about harvesting resources and then spending them to fulfill re uh, recipes to get points. Seen a lot of games like this. What makes Four Gardens special is the way we harvest resources. Because in the center of the table, there is this beautiful three-dimensional tower that has four floors. Each floor can be rotated independently. And when you're going to harvest stuff, you look at the four faces of this tower that are facing you, and that's what you can grab. But the card you play on a turn determines whether you're going to grab from the top or the bottom and get a bunch of stuff or a little bit of stuff. And then you're, you're trying to gather these resources, and you have incredibly harsh, restrictive storage for these resources too, so that you can then convert those resources into scoring points in various sundry ways. It's freaking brilliant. I think it just missed my top 10 of the year it came out. Or maybe even made it. And that's saying something for a game that, at the end of the day, this is a very abstract, this is a total gateway game that you could teach to total novices, but it's one of those gateways that has enough crunch and com uh, not complexity, but depth and tension that even old, salty, board game geeks like me and Jen, who generally turn our noses up at gateway games, love Four Gardens. It's fantastic. Voyages is an interesting thing. Uh, this was a roll and write. Um... And it's another uh, bingo style roll and write where, you know, hey, the, the, you know, and it is dice, right? Yeah. The dice that get rolled, everybody, you know, hey, the die, you know, you use the different die face, the die values for different actions as we are trying to go on voyages and have our ship move around through an ancient Aegean sea. And the interesting thing is, voyages was um, kickstarted with no opportunity to buy a physical copy of the game. Instead, you subscribed to it. And every few months, a few times a year, the developers say, hey, we've come up with a new map that you can explore with new special case rules. And, um, you know, thank you for the, whatever it was, five bucks you uh, you spent to make, to get your subscription. And I love that idea. I have to admit, I have not seen a new Voyages map, because I, I am subscribed. I haven't seen a new one come out for quite a while. Was there only a fixed number they were ever going to make? I'm not quite sure. If though, if honestly, so anyway, the, these are the two are going up against a really nice roll and write, um, you know, bingo-y style game versus an amazing uh, gateway with a really sharp gimmick for harvesting goods. 
If Voyages was still putting stuff out every couple of months, I'd probably give it to Voyages because it's just so exciting. But it's kind of dried up. So I'm going to go with the eternal replayability of Four Gardens, I think. Yes, I did. Okay, and then we get to Voyages, which I just talked about, versus CO2 Second Chance. And uh, CO2 is the first Vito Lasarda game I ever played. Uh, and it's still one of my absolute favorites from the man. It is a game... Oh man, it was so prescient. This game came out like over a decade ago, and it was all about global warming and how humanity had to turn around. It is a game about the power plant industry, and we are power plant magnates trying to replace dirty power all over the world, in all the continents of the world, with clean forms of energy. Or, sometimes, hey, you know what? Uh, the people demand power, and we could build more dirty power. Uh, and the thing is, the more dirty power we build and add to the simulation, the worse climate change gets to where it gets to a breaking point. And if it gets too bad, not surprisingly, like we risk in our own day-to-day -day life everybody loses. So it's interesting. This is a semi-cooperative game. We're competing to be the best, but we, um, you know, we have to be very, very careful because, hey, it is cheap and easy, relatively speaking, to um, make dirty power. But it can destroy everybody. And if, you know, if it destroys everybody, there's no way you can win, right? So we are all incentivized to, um, you know, try to find greener ways to advance. And I think I love the story of that. And honestly, I mean, I know some people, for some people, semi-co-op is a dirty word, but for I mean, for me, I just I guess I don't want to play with you if that's what you say, because people say uh, semi-cooperative games are fundamental fails because if somebody feels like they're losing, then what they'll do is they will purposely try to throw the game so that everybody would lose rather than letting somebody else win. Rather than continuing to try to play their best, they would really um, rather you know take their ball and go home or throw all their toys out of their pram um, because they're spoiled rotten. Here's the deal. I apologize if I have just described you, if you are the type of player who sits down to a semi-co-op game and then decides, oh, well, if I can't win, then everybody's going to lose. I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't want to play games with you. Because, to me, that is a fundamentally anti-social and anti-gamer attitude to have. Um, never mind the fact that it's ridiculous for you to think you're losing anyway, because CO2 is such a rich and robust, complex, combo-chainy game. Um, you know, this game was doing insane, powerful combo chains years before Gone Shown Clever made it cool. And so, there's no guarantee you're losing. You don't know until the final tally. But anyway, some people feel that way, and that's too I feel bad for them, and I feel bad for their friends, uh, because then you can't play really wonderful games, because I have such strong memories of playing this with Jen, and we're both competing and doing our best. And then we were like, we have to put our competition aside. We have to work together to save this planet. We'll compete again a few rounds from now, but right now we got to save this planet. And that makes for really exciting gameplay and a really important story to tell about our, our, our time on this planet. And then if all that weren't enough, the game is brilliant too, because it, um, uh, uh, features a lot of interactive because it's a multi-stage process to build a power plant, right? Where um, you know the groundwork is laid, the um, you know scientists do research there. The thing actually gets built. The scientists involved go off to conferences and share their uh, knowledge with the rest of the world. And the thing is, multiple players can work on the same power plant. I, uh, me doing the groundwork could then let you set up to do the next stage. And I love that interplay in a competitive game. This is something that Vital has since revisited in his most recent design. 
I just covered it the other day, inventions, but the CO2 was doing so much stuff. It was so ahead of the curve. And now, all that said, here's the deal. Everything I just described was the original CO2. CO2 second chance um, introduced, uh, you know, went, had Vital going back and kind of cleaning things up and streamlining the gameplay. Also introducing a cooperative option you can play as well. And the co-op mode is good. I played it in prototype form. I never actually played the final version. But I do remember thinking at the time, but was this another case where, oh, in revisiting the game, some of the stuff that made the original game so great is kind of weakened. The same thing happened with the um, deluxe version of Vinos, where the banking system was removed entirely. And that was my favorite thing about Vinos, but it was too complicated. And here's the deal, folks. I know some tweaks and changes were made to CO2 as well. And I don't remember what they were. So very sadly, it is at this point that I am going to leave you with a cliffhanger after spending all that time describing all of that stuff. But here's the deal, folks. I need to go back and do some more research because uh, all I can think of is my experience playing the original CO2. So did CO2 second chance drop in my estimation? We'll find out in episode 11 of The Rankening. Folks, if you've enjoyed this, well, I hope you did. Uh, there are a whole bunch more options. You can hit that uh, to hit the playlist and see all the earlier episodes. Uh, you can subscribe to the channel so you won't miss the next Rankening two weeks from now. And then there's some other stuff. Phew! Oh, man. Um, I am done, folks. you got to click a thing because we're out of here. And I'm going to do some post-morteming and figure out if this was a good way to film as I got some planning to do for the next ranking. Okay, folks, click!